Welcome to the Gospel Ministry of Exchange Church. Thank you for connecting with us for our Bible talk today, and please feel free to share these talks with others as well. It's our desire to connect people to Jesus and grow people in Jesus. To find out more about us, please visit our website, www.exchangechurch.org.au. So the book of James. So what I want to do, I want to kind of set the scene a bit, and then we'll get into... Um, the talk and and really the big idea of that I'm taking through this this weekend is James is about wisdom for the double-minded, okay? But let's think about James. He wrote this letter two thousand years ago. You think, wow, well, what's he got to say to us? But he actually understands our context. He actually understands the space in which we live as Christians. Because we live in exactly the same space that is the first readers lived in and every other Christian lives in. Just look at verse 1. I want to look at the bookends of James. The first verse, a couple of verses, and the last couple of verses. Look at verse 1. To the twelve tribes of the dispersion. Now, I mightn't say dispersion there, but that's the word. The dispersion describes the Christians who were hunted out of Jerusalem when persecution first started. Right, so the church begins in Jerusalem, it grows and grows and grows. James is leader of that church, and in Acts chapter 8, Stephen gives this speech, I don't know if you remember it, he gives this speech, which he reads the riot act, the gospel riot act to the Jews, right? And they stone him to death. And 8 verse 1 says, And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. They were all scattered. They were all dispersed. James is writing this letter as the leader of the, of the church in Jerusalem. He was very, very aware of the difficulties that all those Christians that were hunted out of Jerusalem faced. So he's writing to scattered Christians. He's writing to Christians that don't live actually where their home is. Writing to people who don't live where they belong and I don't know if you've ever thought about it but that's us. Peter describes us as aliens and strangers right, in a godless world. I think an image for us that's helpful is refugees. It's very familiar to us if you watch telly or um, refugees, people being driven from their homes like the Ukrainians, you know, all those people being driven across the Polish border into Northern Europe. They're now people living in a place that's not their home. They're strangers among the people they live with. They're outsiders. They're tolerated, kind of welcome, but not really. They can't wait to go home and the people who are putting up with them can't wait till they go home, right? It's a bit like us. Life's hard when you don't live where you actually belong. Um, people don't trust you because they're not sure of your allegiances. You have difficult, uh, different values, uh, different attitudes, different beliefs. And I think that's, that's the first readers of this letter and I think that's like us in the 21st century. I don't know about you, but I've never felt more unwelcome in my country than I do now. Do you feel like that? Every time I turn the radio on, I hear someone saying something that's completely against everything I grew up with. Not just as a Christian, but I guess with what we might loosely call Christian values. 
But as a Christian, I just go, and hey, and I live in New South Wales. You guys live in Victoria. <laughs> Got Chairman Dan on your case. My son-in-law, Ross, he's worked in a, a metal fabrication business. Um, I won't go into it, but in his workplace, he just felt like he didn't belong. And whenever you talk to him, he'd always complain about it. Probably the most trustworthy employee, he's actually a manager in the business, brought a lot of business to this, this guy. But because he didn't drink and swear and swap porn with all the blokes in the, in the workplace um, like they did, he wasn't accepted. He was just tolerated. He wasn't liked. And it was really hard for him. We live in a world that's not our home, a world that tolerates us but doesn't really like us. And it's tough. Anyone feel like that? Anyone feel like that? Yeah? Okay, that's us. So James is writing to us. We're part of the great dispersion. We're God's refugees. Now flick over to the last couple of verses of uh, chapter 5. Verses 19 to 20, is it? Yep. This is the danger we all face. When you're refugees, this is the danger you face, right? My brothers and sisters, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. See, our danger is that we'll wander off. See, the easy thing to do when you're a refugee, when you live where you don't belong, is just assimilate. Give up on your values. Stop talking about who you are. Stop telling people what really matters. Just become one of them. Wandering off. Anyone feel like that? Anyone been tempted to wander off? I have. It's hard to follow Jesus. Jesus said he can't be accused of false advertising. He said it's going to be tough to follow me. Follow the narrow road and we just want to wander off. So we live life in the tension between trusting what God says and following him or running down the broad, easy road, um, picking up the easy answers that will come, the instant solutions that will come from our world. That's how we live life, isn't it? And James is like a spiritual doctor. He understands our ailment. He understands the virus we've got. And he calls it double-mindedness. Double-mindedness. And James says there isn't actually a believer alive who doesn't have this problem. Don't look at me and think I'm not double-minded because I'm old and a Christian and I preach. I'm double-minded. All of us get it. It's like the common cold. (laughs) There's no one who hasn't caught this. We're actually born with the problem. So just just come back to the start and just follow through James and you'll see what I mean. Um, Look at 1 verse 6 and 8. He raises the issue of faith and doubt. Right? We trust God, but temptation, difficulty makes us do what? Doubt. And so we're tossed to to and fro like the waves in the sea. Um, we are, verse 8, he says we are double-minded. All right? 
That's what it means to be just hopping from one foot from the other. I know what I should do, but oh, I want to do that. Double-minded. Well, which way are you going to go? <laughs> which, which foot are you going to end up on? That's the issue James is talking to it. I look over at 3 verse 10, just picking up a couple. How we use our tongues. 3 verse 10, James says, Blessing and cursing come out of the same mouth. Mouth, this ought not be. How, how true is that? Like We've just been singing songs. I loved it, actually. Um, on Wednesday afternoon, about as far away from church and the camp as you can get, you kick your big toe or someone says something to you rudely. What are you going to say to them? <laughs> I know what you're going to want to say to them. But what are you going to say to them? And we find the blessing and cursing come out of the same mouth. Why is that? Our double tongue comes from our double heart. Simple as that. 4 verse 4, loving God, loving the world. Down in verse 8, purify your hearts, you double-minded. See, um, we, we, we all suffer from this, and it's because we are saved sinners. We're at the, one and the same time righteous before God in Christ, but living in our, in our flesh. We're forgiven and redeemed, but we still are enticed by the desires and appetites of the world. Even the great Apostle Paul, Romans 7 verse 21, he said, I discover this law in me. While I want to do what is good, evil is present with me. So, as I said, this letter of James is wisdom for the double-minded believer. It's wisdom for us. So... All that's by way of intro, just to help you think where we're going this weekend. I don't know if you've got any questions that come out of what I just said. Um, if you have any, um, I'm happy to pick up on something right now. Any thoughts, comments? I want us to be pretty relaxed and interactive, but you've probably got a million questions. You're just not going to ask them. All right, that's okay. Well, wisdom for the double-minded, James's first bit of wisdom is this. Learn to embrace your trials. Learn to embrace your trials. Look at your Bibles, James 1, verses 2 to 4. And listen to what he says. How countercultural is this? Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials in various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. I reckon that's confronting, isn't it? Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds. Hang on a minute, we're Australians. We, we make avoiding trials like an art form. We live in the land of the long weekend. Like we have, you know, microwaves and smartphones so that we don't have to wait for anything. When you start complaining about how slow your microwave is, you know you've got a problem, right? We're pharmaceuticals so that we don't have to put up with pain. And we've got big government to make sure that someone will sort it out. Even if I stuffed it up, someone else has got to sort it out. Pleasure is a way of life for us, trials and, well, they're just for people in the third world. 
They're for refugees, aren't they, trials? James says, that's right. And that's who you are. <laughs> You're going to have trials. You're a member of God's great dispersion. Refugees always have trials. They don't live in houses. They live under blue tarps. That's hard. It goes with the territory. So, friends, we cannot avoid trials. We can't. Someone says you can, just tell them as nicely as you can, you're a bit of an idiot. Right? The question is, so if we can't avoid them, the question is what are we going to do with them? That's the question. So look carefully what James says. He doesn't say count the joyous trials. doesn't say count uh, the, the trial as joy, sorry. He says count it joy when you meet the trial. Why? Because each trial is an opportunity to help you develop the one thing that you do need and that is steadfastness in your faith. To be able to trust God no matter what comes. Verse 3, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Steadfastness, that ability to just hold steady. It's steadfastness in your faith that will help you cope with trials. And it is dealing with your trials, embrace, learning to embrace your trials, that will grow your steadfastness. Verse 4, let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Perfect doesn't mean moral perfection there. It actually means completeness. It means maturity, becoming the person God saved you to be. All right? And I guess that's the question in the end, is what kind of person do you want to be? What do you want to achieve in life? Do you want to earn big bucks, be famous, have lots of fun, be really good at sport or video games? I don't know. What is your purpose in life? Do you want to be a complete Christian? A well-rounded, Christ-honouring, fruitful Christian? Do you want to be a Christian that isn't lacking in what you need to persevere because you know the trials are coming? Look at verse 12, down to verse 12. Just is this, is this what you would like to be? Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. Is that what you're looking for? The crown of life? Your life will come to an end. Is that what you're looking for at the end? Like it will. There's just no question about it. A crown of life or judgment from God. Is that crown of life your purpose? If it is, then, you see, if that is your purpose, then you will start to see that you can embrace your trials. You consider it all joy when you meet a trial because each trial is an opportunity to strengthen your faith, help you persevere so that you get to that point where you receive the crown. Now, this isn't a new idea. There are, there are people in our society who embrace trials. Um, one example is football players. So I'm, I'm from New South Wales. I, I, I know what AFL is, but not really into it. I'm into NRL. That's real football, right? 
Rugby league. That's where it happens, okay? I follow the Manly Sea Eagles, who are really upsetting me at the moment. Anyway, they've gone all woke on me. Anyway, um, now, yeah, I know, I know. I'm thinking about changing... Yeah, anyway, it's appalling. Um, but long before each season starts, the Sea Eagles have pre-season training. And it's called pre-season torture. That's what they call it. But the first graders embrace the torture. One of my favourite players is Jake Trevojevic. Trevojevic, um, he plays first grade for Manly. Listen to what he says about pre-season, to- pre-season torture. He says, pre-season to- uh, training is torture, but we need it because we need to get fit. For the first two or three weeks, twice a week, we do 2.5 kilometre time trials. So they're probably the most miserable sessions. But he embraces 2.5 kilometre time. It's not run for 2.5 k's. It's do it in this time and if you can't, you've got to do it again. Jake Trebojevic, I can't remember the last time I've seen him gone off. He plays a full 80 minutes. He's 6 foot 2, weighs about 110 kilos and he can do 2.5 k's in some unbelievable time, right? (laughs) Um, He welcomes the torture because he wants to play first grade. And he knows if he doesn't do that, he won't get to play first grade. That illustrates what James is saying. See, if it's your purpose to grow as a Christian and get that crown on Judgment Day, you need to start to think differently about your difficulties and trials. Instead of trying to pray them away, see them as something that God is sending your way to grow the muscles of your faith. I think we, we've got completely wrong on this. What, what have we got to pray about? Oh, well, I've got all these difficulties and we've got to pray them away. Maybe we should say, I've got all these difficulties and I want you to pray for me that I'll have wisdom to know how to face them and not be double-minded. That's a God's going to answer every time. See, James doesn't say if you meet trials. It's when you meet them. Right? There's no opt-out of this. It's when you meet them. If you haven't met trials yet, you just haven't lived long enough. Right? And it won't be just one or two trials. No, it's trials of many kinds. When you meet trials of many kinds. On the other side of the trial you're facing now, guess what? There's more coming down the line. That's encouraging. Oh, thanks, Bruce. That was great. Awesome. It might be COVID today, then it's a lousy boss tomorrow, then it's a difficult temptation the next day, then it's rejection because you're a Christian the next day, might be persecution one day, might even be death. James says you can't avoid them, you're a refugee, you're not home yet. So learn to learn from your trials. Treat each trial as a training run. Use them to grow the muscles of your faith so that you can grow strong and steadfast and get that crown at the end. So, having told us to learn to embrace our trials, he then tells us how to do that. So that's the next thing I want us to think into, into taking notes. How can we embrace our trials? The first uh, I've got I've got two. Um, first one is by asking God for wisdom. Look at verse five. If any of you lacks wisdom, 
Have you ever lacked wisdom? And if you say no, I'll say, uh, sorry, at the moment you're lacking wisdom, okay? <laughs> we all lack wisdom, right? And that's what trials do, don't they? They confuse you. They make you upset. You get emotional. They're disconcerting. The last three years for Robin and I, I reckon we'd say, have been the most difficult of our entire life. Not joking, won't go into it. But it's true, isn't it, hun? And And... We've been beside ourselves knowing what to do. It's a family, extended family issue. And all we've been able to do is ask God for wisdom. And the trial hasn't gone away, but we found wisdom. So look at verse 5 again. See, this is God's promise to you. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. It will be given her to promise. So what's wisdom? It's that combination of knowledge, the truth about something, and of skill. Helps you make the best decision and then do the, take the right action. You know what's true and, so, and you can see what the next step is. So where do we find what is right? Where do you go to find what's right? Favourite podcast? Uh, maybe your psychologist? Um, yeah, they might be handy. James says, no, 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 no. They might be handy, but go to God. God is the source of all true wisdom. Proverbs 2 verse 6 says, For the Lord gives wisdom from his mouth come knowledge and understanding from God, that's where wisdom... And wisdom is the combination of truth and skill and it comes from God because God is the one who's got truth and skill all together. <laughs> he made, he created the world in which we live. So he knows how the world works, he knows how our lives works. He created me, he knows what's best for me. God sees eternity, he sees what you can't see. He sees hell, hell and heaven. And God sees into our double minds and he knows how and why we get things wrong. Wisdom resides with God. That's just the bottom line. So if you want it, you need to ask him for it. Pretty simple, isn't it? And God is generous with his wisdom. He doesn't pick winners. He doesn't give with reproach. He says without reproach. He doesn't pick winners he gives generously. I'm glad God, um, James says this because we think God is like us, that he has his favourites. And when, we, when we've stood on the wrong foot and gone the wrong way, guess what? We think God doesn't like us anymore and he won't answer his prayers, our prayers anymore, won't keep his promises anymore, but he's not like that. We ask for wisdom and you just imagine we're all, we all now go into prayer and ask for wisdom. He doesn't go, oh, I won't give Jeff any. He's got plenty. You know, he's had his fair share. And I, I don't like the way Laurel's doing her hair these days, so I'm not giving her any. You know, and look, I, I'll give Sharon, Sharon some. She, she seems pretty nice. Like, God isn't like us. He doesn't do that. God looks at us and knows that none of us are winners he knows we're all double-minded fools. He knows that every one of us needs wisdom 
and he's waiting for us as a father to give it to us. That's what God is like. We just sang of the goodness of God. It's true. Now I've got four kids, eight grandkids, eight and a half grandkids. Um, the one thing I love is when I get a phone call from one of my kids and they say, Dad, need some advice. I want to know what you think about something. Guess what I do? I don't care what I'm doing. I just drop everything. They have my full attention. I listen and try to give them my very best advice. God's better at that than me. Do you want to be able to learn from the unavoidable trials in your life? Do you want to be able to put them to good use? God's waiting to help you with the wisdom you'll need to do it. But asking God requires you to trust him. And let's be honest, that's hard most of the time. And it's hard for a very simple reason. It's because the thing that's troubling you, you know, the, a big, hairy, horrible thing, whatever it is, temptation, circumstances, it's there, it's in your face, you know. Where's God? Well, you can't see him. He's somewhere. It's, it's the living by faith by faith thing, isn't it? Sight or faith. Trusting God means walking by faith, not by sight, and that's hard. So in the middle of meeting a trial, turning to God for wisdom, we hit hit this problem we've got, double-mindedness. We're tempted to doubt God. Tempted to doubt his answers are true, but they will be. God's answers will require some spiritual muscle, probably happen over time. That's the answer from God. The answer from the world will be easy, immediate, Make us, in, in, you know, instant gratification, but it'll be the wrong advice. So what happens? We doubt. Look at verse 6. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Describing me. I know that I'm like that. So what do we do? How do we overcome our doubts? Well, we keep listening to what God says. We keep going back to God because he doesn't give with reproach. He's waiting to help. And when we get it wrong and sin and doubt and wander off, guess what? God's still there. He's still there ready to give you wisdom for life. And that's where James takes us in the passage. Think back to the first readers that James is writing to. He's writing to people who have been kicked out of their home. Uh, They've been thrown into prison. They've lost their possessions. They've lost their property. Some have lost their life. That's who he's writing to. They had a lot tougher than we do. So what James does in the passage is he reminds them of the wisdom that comes from God. In their circumstances of poverty and loss, he reminds them of what God has said about them from the scriptures. Now, if you've got a a Bible with cross-references, you'll see the next um, verse 9 through through 11. He's put together this sort of collage that comes from the Bible. 
from, I think it's from Jeremiah 9, Psalm 102, Isaiah 40. He gathers the wisdom of God to help people who are suffering the way they're suffering to see the wisdom of God and encourage them. And James does something else here that you will notice as you go through the letter. You get used to James was Jesus' half-brother, Jesus' younger brother. And James just sounds like Jesus. And, and you, read, you read through and you say, Jesus said something like that, Jesus said something like that. He keeps dropping into this letter exactly what Jesus says. So just pick it up with me, verse 9. Let the, let, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. So this is James' wisdom to these people who are suffering. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flowers falls and its beauty perishes. So also with the ri- will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Do you see how God's wisdom helps the destitute? He reminds them of what God says. Things that are true, things that are eternally true. The destitute person who hopes in God has a great and secure future for them. That's what he's saying. But the rich man who hopes in his wealth is in real, real trouble because it'll all be taken away. And if that's what he's trusted in in life, when he stands before God, he'll say, I never knew you. So the destitute person who trusts in God has a great future. Amazing, isn't it? When you know this and understand this and believe this, guess what? You can can embrace your trial. Verse 12, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. So how do you learn to embrace your trials? You ask God for wisdom. You go to God's word for wisdom. The better you know what God has actually said, the better prepared you will be to face the trials in life. Now you'll have heard Todd say this a million times. He's a million and one. Are you reading your Bible? Do you have a Bible? Do you read it? Do you know what God says? You need to, because the trials are coming. We go to God for wisdom. Second bit of advice, how do we embrace our trials? Well, it's by not being deceived about yourself or God. Don't be deceived about yourself. Don't be deceived about God. Look at verse 13 to 18. Follow along. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose us, he chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be kind of first fruits of all he created. Can I ask, have you ever doubted God? Have you ever doubted his goodness? 
I'd be very surprised if you said you'd never done that. Have you ever blamed God? God, you're in control. The Bible says that. I believe that. And life really sucks. So guess what? It's all your fault. And I'm starting to wonder if you're good or not. You ever thought like that? Sickness or mental illness or tragedy or death strikes. We think maybe God doesn't care after all. Even that it's his fault. Strong temptation when that comes. When there is something or someone you like. Oh, that's nice or she's nice, you know. It or he or she is better or newer or nicer than whatever it is you've got at the moment. They appear to be so good, it's easy to think that God is not good, but he's mean because he says you can't have it. And if if it isn't good and God was good, then wouldn't wouldn't he stop me being tempted in the first place? They're the doubts that arise, aren't they? We... Doubt God. James says at that moment, don't be deceived about yourself or about God. God has no hand in sin or temptation. God is not evil. God is not the author of evil. God is light, the father of lights. In him there is no darkness. Never, ever forget that. And if you're wondering how you know that, Go to the cross. If you say God is evil, then you have to say to Jesus, you're a creep. That's what you've got to say. Where God the Son dies at the hands of the evil powers, human and spiritual evil powers, and you've got to say to Jesus, you are not good, you're a creep, you don't care. Go to the cross and you'll realise that God is good. Do I understand it? No. But God can do no more than that to show us that he's good. Verse 13 says, When when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. In other words, when you go to God for wisdom, trust him. Don't be deceived by lies about God. God is good. In fact, he divines what is good. While the values of our world constantly change, God doesn't change, the passage says, like shifting shadows. So guess what? Good doesn't change either. Don't be deceived about God. If he says it's bad, it's bad by definition. Just trust him. If he says it's wrong, it's wrong by definition. On the other hand, if it comes from him, if it agrees with his word... It's good by definition. Verse 17, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. We mustn't be deceived about God. Ultimately, in our world, he is the only source of goodness. But that's only half the story. James says we mustn't be deceived about ourselves either. Verse 14 to 15, each person, this, but, so it's not God's fault, but each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. 
Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. At the core of our being, we have this problem, and it is self-deceiving double-mindedness. It's imprinted in our nature. We have imprinted in our nature now that question that first deceived Adam and Eve. Has God really said? It's, it's now our nature to ask that. Every time God says, oh, did he really say that? If we give in to our desires and follow the sinful impulse of our double mind, we will not find goodness. We'll find evil. We'll not find life. We'll find death. So don't be fooled about yourself. If you're tempted, if you allow your desire to be your advisor instead of God, you will be dragged away. And you keep that up and you wander off, it gives birth to death. So which do you want? Life or death, heaven or hell? Life will come from trusting God. See, that's what happened when you became a Christian. You heard God's word. It told you to change, told you to repent, told you to turn away from your sin. You believed it. You followed him. Verse 18 says, he brought us forth or gave us new life by his word of truth. That's how you became a Christian. By going to God's wisdom and not being deceived about yourself. His will for us is in doing so is that we will be his first fruits, that we'll keep doing that. He wants us to continue in that way of life. You become a Christian through repentance and faith. You live the Christian life through repentance and faith. It's as simple as that. In a world full of trouble where we meet many and various trials, we have to learn to embrace them so as to strengthen our faith and endure till the end. I'll pray. Father, please forgive us um, for doubting you. Thank you for showing us your goodness through Christ on the cross. Thank you for giving us your good wisdom in your word. Lord, as we break and have a cup of tea, um, help us to think about this and maybe talk about it with one another. Please help us to encourage each other to embrace our trials, not run away from them. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. We trust you have enjoyed our Bible talk from today. If you have any questions or comments from today's talk, please feel free to contact us at info at exchangechurch.org.au. Also, we love to welcome new people at Exchange Church in person, so consider yourself invited to be with us.